Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. As a business owner, are you continually searching for less stress, more time freedom, and increased profits? Prosper for Business by Mackey might be the solution you've been looking for. Prosper for Business is both an executive coaching program and fractional CFO service designed to deliver exceptional results through increased education, visibility, and accountability. Prosper for Business graduate Jude Hemmen, CEO of Furlong Building Enterprises, said, The decision to work with Mackey was a life changer. They truly care about our success and give us the tools to do so. Working with the Mackey team also helped Julie Bach, owner of the Bach Group, see things in the business she hadn't seen before that led her to the business being more efficient, productive, and profitable. Does Prosper for Business sound like the right next step for your business? Visit MackeyAdvisors.com slash smallgiants. That's M-A-C-K-E-Y Advisors.com slash smallgiants to learn more. My guest today is Carl Erickson. Carl is the ex-executive chairman of Atomic Object, an 85-person software design and develop consultancy he co-founded in 2001. Carl has a passion for both quality craftsmanship and people-focused management. Atomic has won numerous awards and allocates and was named a Forbes Small Giant in 2018. A number of their team members have graduated from our Leadership Academy, and we're grateful to Carl for being one of our sounding board mentors. Welcome, Carl. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Well, first, I want to congratulate you because uh, only a number of weeks ago, you retired as executive chair. Uh, your last job with Atomic Object, and uh, so how does that? Uh, how are you feeling about all that? <laughs> I feel great about that. Um, it was uh, we started in two thousand and one, and so that was uh, you know pretty close to twenty two years. And I I felt like when I took the executive chairman role in twenty nineteen that that would be the last job I had in the company, and I was right. I was reflecting on this. Uh, the other prediction I made in 2009 was that I'd be the first person to retire from the company for all of us who were going to were destined to be long term atoms. And that turned out to be true, too. Now, this wasn't such a, a brilliant projection or prediction at the time, because uh, in 2008, when I was putting our employee ownership program together, we were 19 people, I believe. And what amazes me now is not that I was the first to retire, but that nine of those 19 people are still at the company or mm-hmm. they were until I retired. So that's pretty cool. That's longevity that I think gets to uh, a culture that maintains and encourages that, but also our employee ownership plan. Because the other thing that's rather remarkable about my retirement is uh, I only own 38% of the company at, at the end of last year. and that transition was much more possible, first of all, and also smooth because we had this employee ownership plan that I could sell my shares into. Mm. 
Yeah, I want to talk more about the employee ownership and how you came to start that back in 2008. Uh, how did the company originally start? It really came out of uh, the ashes of uh, a dot-com startup. I was a professor at Grand Valley State University and taught there for 10 years. But also, you know, while I love teaching and I love the, uh, the uh, formality and the histories of universities, there's an element that's not so great, which is it tends to be, they tend to be very status quo loving places and they're slow to change, which is not a great match to my personality. So I was not so happy uh, as I should have been in the role. Um, and when a former student of mine said, hey, you want to uh, do the engineering uh, team for a startup of, of his, I said, yeah, I'll give that a shot. So I took a leave of absence from the university and created a team. Um, three or four people, three students, one, two former students. And that was learned a ton, picked up agile development practices, which were brand new at the time and unheard of, and really has revolutionized our field in these last 20 odd years. Um, and that was very exciting. And I resigned my position, my tenured, tenured and promoted position, like the last safe job in the state of Michigan in March of 2001. And the startup I was working with failed to close a second round of financing in July and just went out of business. So Atomic came out of the ashes of that startup with, you know, the remains of a lease and some crappy old office furniture and all that kind of stuff. You know, Atomic has won so many awards as a best place to work. You have shepherded this uh, very unique and special culture. Where did that uh, germinate from? Is that something that you were just kind of born with and you knew you wanted to run the company like that? Or did you change from other leadership styles? Where did that originally come from? Uh, I think that does come from who I am as a person. Now, of course, you know, 20 plus years, it's been an awful lot of work that's been done by many people over the years, especially some of those nine um, long serving Adams, two of whom now our co-CEOs and run our company. Uh, our first intern actually, Mike Marsiglia is one of those people. But while I certainly didn't do all the work myself, uh, thank heavens, I do see very much my own values and my own personality in the company for better or for worse. I think mostly for better, sometimes not, not so well or not so good. And I, so I, I think that's probably not an unusual thing for a founder to have that kind of a influence over the company. After all, you know, there's no one, you're, no one is your boss and there is no governance structure to tell you good idea, bad idea. Um, I, one of the, you know, things about me just personality wise is I have a fairly high degree of, of self-confidence and I guess self-regard. And so I was willing to try and do things in ways that weren't conventional as far as business goes. And I was not burdened by having any business education whatsoever. My university degrees are all in uh, computer engineering, basically. So since I didn't know the right way to do it, I just did it the way I did the way I did things the way I thought they should be done or that, you know, is, would make Atomic a place I wanted to work. So after all, I was planning on, um, you know, being a part of it indefinitely. So following my own instincts uh, led us down some interesting and uh, unconventional paths in terms of our business operations that 
I think have proven advantageous over time and have differentiated us. And like, for instance, our employee ownership plan came came right out of that. We're a non-ESOP employee-owned company, which is pretty unusual. Yeah, so you decided not to go the traditional route of an ESOP, but uh, fairly early in the company, you decided to become employee-owned. Um, describe that a little bit and what led you toward uh, sharing ownership with uh, everyone in the company. So it's 2008, and I look around and I see a whole bunch of people, I guess 19, uh, exhibiting our you know, value mantra number one, which is give a shit, and, and value mantra number two, which is own it. So they're acting like they own the place, and that was awesome, and it was great for the company, it was great for our clients, it was great for innovation. Um, and it was so great, in fact, that it felt wrong to me that they didn't legally have any ownership. And so it felt to me like the way I should exemplify our own it value mantra was to uh, figure out a way for the people who are making long-term commitments and excited about the company and, and really contributing greatly to it would benefit uh, from ownership. So I looked into ESOPs, of course, because that's sort of the, you know, the most obvious way to do an employee-owned company. At the time, I don't remember what our revenue was, but it was probably only in on the order of four or five, six million, something like that. And um, that was an expensive route. And it was also fundamentally flawed from my perspective and still is because it's a, a retirement program. So if you have a bunch of, at the time I had, uh, you know, most of our, our company was still in their 20s. Most of our employees are still in their 20s. And so putting a retirement program into place just seems sort of unmotivating and like work really hard. Your reward is in heaven kind of an argument. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a there's also because it's a retirement program, I don't think you get the same, maybe the same direct sense of like, oh, I actually do own this. I get a K-1. I have to worry about taxes. I I have a vote in, in the company. Like all those things come along with actual ownership. So I did the simplest thing that could possibly work, which was I have most of the shares and I want to spread those to other atoms. And I'll start out by selling my shares to, I think it was eight people in that first round, which took place in May of 2009. Took me about a year to put all this together, write up a prospectus, uh, get our very, very helpful lawyer to make it safe without messing it up and um, figure out how to implement on my, my scheme. And I was really, really happy uh, when I uh, handed out the prospectus and made offers. And then I waited for a couple of weeks while people talked about that and digested it, that, um, all but one of the people who got an offer accepted it and they bought in and we all signed a, a bottle of scotch, fancy bottle of scotch together to celebrate. And mm -hmm. from that point, from that first round or that first close, you know, we've had dozens of uh, events where people have come into ownership and we have an, a program where you can do a smaller amount of ownership from the, your first year of service. Uh, through payroll deductions, so it's real easy to do. About five years in is when you get an offer for a more significant number of shares that have historically come from me. Now my uh, co-CEOs are taking over uh, the mantle of being the source of shares. So they'll be doing an offer around in April, uh, which they'll fund out of their shares. 
So it, the program is continuing and has, I think, worked remarkably well over the years. I love it. Um, have you seen that that's had a direct impact on the culture and on people living those values on a day-to-day basis? You know, this is one of these questions where you can't have a control, right? There is no atomic. They didn't have employee ownership that I can compare against. But mm. I can look at things like our our the longevity of our some of our employees, um, how what our turnover rate has been, uh, com- and compare that to the industry average and consultancies in general tend to be pretty short term um, tenures, and see much better higher numbers there. I can also see like some hard times we've gone through that people get get through them instead of taking the easy way out and saying like, oh, to hell with it, I'm just going to get another job. I'm upset about something. And I think that they they work harder to resolve their conflicts or their unhappiness so that they can stick around because they really care about it. I see great levels of engagement and care for the culture and for crafting it and for maintaining it and for passing it along. Teach and learn is probably our favorite value mantra, and I see ton- I've seen tons of that going on over the years, um, where we 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 hire a lot right out of college, especially for software developers. And a college degree in computer science is a great base, but it you're still a long way from being a professional software developer. So our more experienced folks take those uh, younger people under their wing as new atoms and and bring them up through a two year program. It accelerates their entry into the field. That's, uh, I think, a really healthy sign of the culture. And, you know, you do that when not only do you care about the company and your colleagues and the profession and your clients and all that, but you're also an owner of the company. And you're obviously it's in your interest to make sure we have good new talent and hires and that we're preserving the things that make us special. So, yes, I think it's had a huge positive impact. It's just kind of hard to prove. Well, you don't need to prove it to anybody. You can just see it by what you guys have achieved over all these years and how it makes you feel, how you sound, reflecting on implementing it, executing on it, and continuing it to this day. Um, You know, you made another probably fairly unconventional choice a few years ago was to turn over the CEO reins to two people, to Sean and Mike. Uh, How's that going? It's gone really well. You know, I didn't take two people who are strangers and say, you're both now CEO. Um, Mike had been with us since the absolute beginning of the company. He was actually in the startup that went bust that left me free to do Atomic. So I've known Mike since he was, I think like, well, I actually knew him as a student. So I think I've known him since he was 18 or 19, believe it or not. But um, Sean joined the company just a few years after we'd started. So they both have worked at Atomic for uh, the vast majority of their careers. And they started running our Grand Rapids office together in 2014. So I had plenty of time to mentor them and to watch, maybe more importantly, how they worked together and how they complemented each other and how they resolved conflict. And I was very confident that this co-CEO model would be good for the company and good for them. Uh, I think founder CEO is a very can be a very lonely job. I certainly felt that. And, uh, and a stressful one for that reason. What I believed would be better for the people stepping into the job would be to do it together in a pair. 
And I think that's proven out as well. Um, it's interesting that one of the software development practices we were very early pioneers in way back in 2000, basically, is something called pair programming. We believe in the power of pairs, literally two people at one computer writing code together. And we pair our managing partners in our offices. So now we have um, co-CEOs. We have a CEO pair. That's uh, uh, something we think makes the job funner and more um, sustainable for the people in, in doing the hard work. What a great model. You know, I want to take you back, Carl, um, because all of these innovations in running the operation uh, as part of your journey came from somewhere. And I'd like to, to learn what parts of your early life might have had an impact on your leadership journey. So talk about uh, your family, uh, any early jobs, where you might have uh, seen that impact come from. I, you know, I had the, uh, the classic first job, which was uh, a paper boy, basically, something my brother and I did together, my younger brother and I did together delivering these uh, penny saver newspapers that were free to all, all the people in an area. So you're basically, your job is to ride around in a bicycle and spam people's porches with this free newspaper. But that was, uh, that was very early on. I don't even, probably like 14 or something. And, you know, switched over to doing uh, jobs in restaurants, busing, and, and then eventually uh, dishwashing, and then eventually cooking. And uh, seeing how, seeing those, seeing like examples of managers early on, I think in hindsight was very uh, influential, good managers and bad managers. Um, junior achievement is another one. But those are sort of like the extracurricular professional stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I have this the, just an incredible um, boost up in the world by having a family that was loving and caring and um, encouraging and stayed together and good relationships with siblings and a long history of, um, you know, like going back to grandparents who all went to college so uh, expectation about that without even having it be spoken. Um, lots of lots of privilege and lots of examples of where I, I really uh, got a big boost early in life and um, influenced by people in my life like my grandfather, who I distinctly remember learning from him while we were while he was teaching me how to use some woodworking tools. I don't remember the project we were doing anymore, but distinctly remember I can still see him. Uh, saying this to me when I, I was probably uh, frustrated or tempted to cut a corner on some project we were doing. And he said, anything worth doing is worth doing well. And so mm. that idea of quality as a really important value in and of itself is something I hold dear and have always, have always felt. And uh, one of the things that's always distinguished atomic object is we write really good software and, you know, originally good men, free of most bugs, which was quite a, a, a remarkable thing back 20 years ago. I think it's still a, a bit of a remarkable thing. There's pl plenty of crappy buggy software, but that, but that wasn't satisfying, you know, over the course of 20 years, you know, writing good software meant writing it in a way that our clients could predict what their budget was going to be. And writing good software meant uh, software that was beautiful as well as uh, bug free and software that um, had you know, a positive experience for the end user. 
So the definition of quality morphed over time, but quality is something deeply embedded in atomic psyche. In fact, it's so deeply embedded, we don't even have a value mantra for it because it goes without saying. Mm. That's incredible. Uh, what about, uh, you moved, right, when you were young from Michigan to Kentucky? Yeah. When, my, when I was 10 years old, my family moved from Detroit suburbs down to western Kentucky. And um, that was not an, actually an easy move. It's, it's funny to look back on and think about like those eight years I spent in Kentucky from 10 to 18 before I went off to college. And they were so, they, they felt and still at some level do feel so influential in my life to be, you know, a, a cultural transplant, um, a pretty, pretty hard cultural transition from Michigan down to Kentucky. Um, and yet there's only eight years in my life. I'm 61 now, so you wouldn't think it would matter so much, but I do think it mattered, uh, because of the, because of the years. And I was, um, tall kid. I was, uh, certainly one of the smartest, if not the smartest kid in my fifth grade classroom. And I spoke with this funny Northern accent and <laughs> in <laughs> short, I really didn't fit into the fifth grade, um, boys that uh, I shared the classroom with, with the exception of one very close friend. And that, I think, set, you know, had a major impact on, on my personality and, um, you know, the leadership experiences I had, like junior achievement, were also very influential, mostly because of the, of the mistakes I made and the failures I had. We um, did junior achievement for a couple of years. I think it's a great program. And we were successful. My partner and I were successful, who happened to be my best friend at selling. And I ended up being the president of my junior achievement um, company at the, in the last year I participated and made just terrible mistakes about, you know, handling the, the other people in the company and, and how I interacted with them and what I expected from them and how I talked to them. And that's amazing. I didn't get a bloody nose over it, honestly. Um, <laughs> And that actually, it kind of uh, shook me like, wow, that's that that was not easy. And that was not fun. And that didn't go well. And when I looked back on it years later, I'm like, thank God it didn't go well. Like that was those those lessons were so valuable. It would have been much. It wouldn't have been anywhere near as valuable if, you know, I had somehow magically done everything right, because then I wouldn't have learned anything from it. Hmm. Can you think of an unexpected learning from an unexpected source somewhere along the way? I have, uh, I think, a real blessing in that I am very willing to learn from uh, anybody, regardless of their age. And so when I think about mentors, I, I think about sort of classical mentors who like were ahead of me in, in my profession. I can think of one person in particular, a couple of people in particular at the university who are mentors academically. But I can also think of some, you know, some young to mid 20 year olds that I learned a bunch of stuff from. And I, uh, I wouldn't necessarily have ever expected that. And I was uh, really, really happy to have that happen in my life. So unexpected in the sense of the source and unexpected in the sense of what I learned from them. Mm. I love that you can do that with, uh, you know, like you said, your mentors can be young or old. Um. Uh, that's a great way to look at it. We we look at we tend to learn a lot from those that we mentor as well. Um, and I'm a couple years older than you, so um, 
as you look at Atomic today, what do you got? What do you see as the future of the company? I know you're out. I know you you may say, well, it's not up to me. Um, but what kind of path is Atomic on in terms of its growth trajectory? Um, the the same path we've been on for a long time. You know, our one of our business strategies is that culture is our strategy. Uh, that's sort of the shorthand way of saying it. That we we think very much about culture and and how impactful that is, and how when you don't have your own products and you don't specialize in one technology and you don't specialize in one particular industry, which are all common patterns for consultancies like ours, then what is it you do? And you know, our focus is our strategy to be successful is to pay close attention to the culture and make sure it works to produce good results for clients, positive impact in our communities, and uh, fulfilling satisfying jobs for atoms. The growth strategy itself is following the dictum of being great, not big. And by that, uh, it doesn't mean you don't grow. Obviously, we've grown from two founders to, I think it's now like 90, 95 people. So we've grown quite a bit over those 20 plus years. But what we don't do is we don't say we're going to grow X percent next year. We say we're going to continue to be the best we can possibly be. We're going to be um, relentlessly dissatisfied with the status quo. And that will drive us to find better ways of doing our work and push us into new technologies and solving problems for customers that they didn't know they had or didn't have 10 years ago. That relentless dissatisfaction with the status quo is part of our staying good at what we do. And um, focusing on being as good as we can be results in growth, but it is not explicitly focused on growth. And I hope Atomic holds on to that. I think it's extraordinarily powerful. Um, the last few years, we've grown about 10% a year in a, in a very organic fashion. And I think that's a comfortable number. The architecture of the company has been um, well-established for many years now of being really focused on each office rather than being centralized. The managing partners of each office have a great deal of responsibility for sales and hiring and management. And so that's really where the most important work happens and the power lies. And because of that, you know, we can have a culture like ours that, you know, does depend on knowing each other and caring about each other in a hundred person company because your daily lived experience as an atom is people in your office, which in Grand Rapids is roughly 40, 45. Ann Arbor is uh, roughly 30, 35. And Chicago is roughly 15. We have a office opening in North Carolina uh, late later this year. So that'll probably start out about five people. We like to seed them that way. So that architecture of having that, um, you know, the atom as the, the central central actor and then teams of atoms working for clients um, who are gathered together in an office and having a company layer that supports that structure and provides a centralized set of services like marketing and financials and all that kind of stuff, I think can take us up to probably 10 to 15 offices before we'd have to uh, refactor that the structure. But that'll be the, the challenge, maybe not even for Mike and Sean, I don't know, but that'll be the challenge for some CEOs someday 
to figure out what structure works to grow beyond that, or to say it doesn't and to stay the same, same size and figure out how to keep refreshing the company in other ways. Our, our goal is 100 years old. We want to be a 100-year-old company. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a nice KPI for that. You know, you just take the number of years old you are now and divide by 100, <laughs> and there's your, we're 23% of the way there. Yeah, um, okay. You're well on your way. <laughs> Um, well, in our way, although, yes. I, I, although you haven't been involved in you know operations as much over the last couple of years, can you remember a, a, a really humbling decision that you had to make as a leader? Oh yeah, um, <clears throat> I think I've done every job at Atomic at one point or another, and um, you know one of the, the most humbling and difficult decisions was shutting down our Detroit office. We uh, went into Detroit in two, 2012 with great enthusiasm, making the argument that, you know, what happened to Detroit affected Michigan and we all lived in Michigan. And so that was directly in our interests. And we just wanted to be a part of the exciting thing that was starting to happen in downtown. Ironically, I thought we were a little bit late to the game, but we were enthusiastic to be over there. And we shut that office down three years later, uh, a bit over three years later, with the realization that we we didn't really know what we didn't know about the culture and about our operations. And so we had a hard time hiring someone to run that office. And we had a hard time giving them freedom to operate with with setting and setting boundaries to letting them know where those those guidelines were. We didn't do a good job at that. Um, transplanting the culture was tricky to a different place. And we were also really early there. So we had lots of conversations with some very excited early stage, super early stage, ill-funded startups. Um, but the kind of companies that we're good at serving, which is, you know, well-funded startups and or medium to large businesses that have uh, the kind of budgets you need to build custom software projects, which is, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, we didn't have as many clients over there and we didn't, downtown we didn't really have access to those people so we had access to blue cross blue shield and dte and a whole bunch of startups but very little in between so we made all sorts Mm -hmm. of mistakes and it was hard to say hard to admit like this needs to be we need to stop and and reassess and come back and, and uh and give up on that dream we certainly didn't put all that time money and effort in with the intent of only giving it a three year run but that's i think that was the right decision well, uh, you're humble to admit that too, and it's you know you had this uh, incredible story, but it doesn't always go well. It doesn't always go like you want, and um, you rise up from those mistakes. Is there uh, at this you know late part of the game, let's call it, is there a part of leadership that you think that you still need to improve on, Carl? <laughs> uh, there's so many things I could still improve. And actually, I'm toying with this notion of whether I should cancel my HBR membership or subscription because I don't know that that's what I want to be um, spending my time learning about anymore. And, but, I, but at the same time, I'm like, well, it's not like I'm done learning all those things. So I think I've become a better leader over time. I've, I think I've always been a better leader than a manager. I'm a great manager for self-managing people and maybe better at inspiration and encouragement than I am at sort of traditional performance management kind of stuff. I don't think I want to be better at that. Honestly, I'm willing to let that part go and not put myself in a position where I need to have those skills anymore. Hmm. 
I love that being a better leader than manager. I mean, that's what all of us should aspire to, to do. Um, that's what leadership is all about. And your description of, uh, the company and, you know, growing not for growth sake, uh, is really the definition of a small giant. So you guys, uh, have lived that and will be on that path for, for years to come. Uh, Carl, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in, in their journey, a, a young person? I know you mentor lots of people, um, but what would you say to them as they're starting out in their leadership journey? I think a big part of it is trusting trusting yourself and, and your instincts and not being, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by uh, stories in the news about, you know, how startups are supposed to be and how companies are supposed to be run and what you need to do to succeed and what success even looks like. I see a lot of this in the companies and the founders I mentor now, where there's just sort of um, can be an unspoken assumption that capital needs to be raised. And so there's interest in venture capital. And I spent quite a few years uh, being a venture capitalist myself, and I know that game pretty well. And uh, the, the more I came to realize what that game is, the less I was interested in playing it, honestly. And there are certainly some great things venture capital does. There's some companies that could never get off the ground without it. But I think there are a lot more companies that uh, can find an organic path to success than, than the popular imagination would allow you to assume. So that's one of the big things I talk about with my mentees is how can you do this more organically? And that looks very different than doing it in sort of the, yeah, but I want to be on the cover of Fast Company because I grew this company at outrageous rates path. Yeah. Um, I had no experience with outside capital um, in the early days when we really needed it and nobody would give it to us. And then later on, you're making money and everybody's throwing it at you. Um, so we never had any outside capital and, you know, had to suffer along the way. But I always tell people, if you can bootstrap, bootstrap, you know, because um, I don't think you guys would have been able to even make the decisions that you've made and be as innovative and, and unique in the culture that you built uh, had you been really answering to someone else. And like you said, you know, a lot of companies can't do it any other way in this day and age. They have to raise capital, but the more you can do it organically, I completely agree with that. Yeah, keeping our ownership inside the company is, I think for any company, is critical if you really are serious about indefinite life and a 100-year goal. Because once your ownership's gone. I'm really looking forward to what is ahead for you, Carl, because I think there's much more to come um, in terms of the impact you make. I want to end with these five quick hit questions, just like the association game, name the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, can, can you name a leader you look up to? I look up to my wife a lot. Mm. And I think she's a different style of leader, but I think she is a leader in her own right. That's the first time we've had a spouse mentioned. I like that. Um, and you guys have been together, married 30-some years? Yeah, very close to 40 now. Wow, good for you. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? <laughs> well, Small Giants is a great book that had mm -hmm. a huge impact on me. Um, uh, I read an awful lot. I'm reading even more now that I'm in retirement, and that's a great joy in life. Um, a book I read very recently that I think is going to have an impact on my leadership style is a book called Low Anthropology by David Zoll. 
Uh, very interesting and uh, unusual take on on what to expect from humans. Interesting. How about your all-time favorite movie? Favorite movie? Don't watch a lot of movies, but I really do remember greatly enjoying The Matrix when it came out. Yeah. Uh, how, well, I don't know if you uh, watch a lot of TV, but do you have a favorite TV series you like to binge watch? Actually, I'm looking forward to the third season of Ted Lasso. That was a, yeah. a surprise enjoyment, and I just, I, I so loved that set of characters and the, the way his leadership style and maintaining curiosity over over knowledge is something we could all try to remember more of. And just being a nice guy. <laughs> just being a nice guy, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? Uh, well, I have a silly um, secret skill. If you give me a credit card that, say, is defunct or expired and a pair of scissors, I can cut it into perfect halves without even thinking about it. How do you do that? <laughs> I'll have to show you sometime. Okay. I don't know. It's kind of magic. Yeah. All right. We'll check that out. Um, well, Carl, this has been wonderful. I want to reflect on some of the things I learned from you today. Um, just hearing your story, uh, you know, you started out in academia, you, like you said, you got a little tired of that because it didn't move at the pace that you needed to, or your mind was working, um, that, that the culture of atomic came in much degree from who you are. Um, and I had the same experience in my company, Bureau Health, where people used to always say, well, where did you come up with the idea of running a company like this? And, I said, and my two brothers and I said, well, we never came up with the idea. It's just really who we were. And our parents raised us with good core values. Um, we did realize at some point that it was something that we could build upon and it be, could become the magic to what we deliver. Um, but it wasn't really by design. Um, mm -hmm. The, uh, you know, you talk about having high self-confidence, which allowed you to take risks. Um, those two key core values of Atomic, give a shit and own it for uh, all of the atoms to live. And um, if people haven't realized already, uh, an employee is an atom in, in your company. Um, and uh, the way you researched and developed the employee ownership plan and have executed on that. Um, the idea of those younger people coming in and having to wait for a traditional ESOP to pay out uh, upon retirement, that's a long, long way away. And the way you make it current ownership, um, there's no question that it developed great loyalty for the business. Um, it's worked out well for you. It's worked out for all those that buy in. They can do it in different ways. Um, there's a, lots of flexibility. Uh, I just love the homegrown way that you guys develop that. Um, and the courage to even make that decision with Sean and Mike to make them co-CEOs, realizing that being the founder and CEO can be lonely. But if you uh, find that these are compatible people who have different skills that can both contribute to growing the company and do it together, and it's already been a number of years that they've been doing that successfully, that turns out to be a, a great decision. Uh, and this idea of pair programming that you said you were early on in that that that's the way you actually operate your business. Um, I really love that. Um, some of these early lessons that you learned, um, managers that you had in early jobs, restaurants, et cetera. I'm not sure I would look at my early managers when I was waiting tables as the best examples of management or more likely what not to do. Um, but they're all experiences. 
um, you know, what you learn from your grandfather that any, anything worth doing is worth doing well, just very simple, but that has stayed with you your whole life. You seems like you had a good stable family and childhood and a good education growing up. Um, and I love the fact that atomic, that quality is, is so deeply embedded in the culture that it's not even a value. It's not, you didn't even have to describe it because that's just the way you live and you don't just define it by lack of bugs in a software program. You define it much, much more than that. Um, the other experience, your move to Kentucky, being top of the class, junior achievement, making those mistakes and learning all contributed to your leadership journey. And the fact that you said mentors uh, are people that have more experience than us or less experienced than us, but we learn just the same and you're paying it forward by mentoring uh, a lot of people right now. Um, and for Atomic, which you said doesn't have its own product and is a consultant developing for other people, you have to have a strategy and culture is your strategy. I think that's probably quite unusual for companies in your um, in your industry. And if I read something recently, you guys won an award of being the best software developer in the world. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, evidently. Clutch thinks we're the top software developer in the whole world. Wow. Uh, that's uh, that's something to be pretty proud of. Um, Quite amazing. Um, but you're really living this small giant's life. You know, we don't grow for growth's sake, but if we do things well, if we bring that quality, if we have that strategy that's based around our culture, we're going to naturally grow every year. You do have a goal to be a 100-year company. Uh, and you're well on your way to do that. Um, you, you've had bumps along the way, having to make that decision to shut down the Detroit the Detroit office. Um, we've all had challenges, and, and it's how we get up from those challenges and keep going. Um, your focus on leadership versus management, and people need to understand there's a big difference there. And just managing the performance of people is different than leading, inspiring, motivating, training, and putting people in the position uh, to be leaders themselves. And I think you have found and uh, used your niche there to develop many, many good leaders at Atomic. Uh, and finally, the advice uh, that you're giving to others, just trust your instincts. Don't just watch the news. Don't think that you need to be the next billion dollar company. If you have a chance to do it organically, if you have a chance to bootstrap, take it slow, build it the way you want. When you have control over your own destiny, you're going to be able to build that culture. And I'm sure it feels just as good to uh, have made the impact on all the people you've made in your career as it has been to um, earn money from the stock plan or um, whatever else has come with growing Atomic. Uh, you've really touched so many people's lives. And uh, Carl, I want to thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Paul. You are an incredible note taker, I got to say, too. <laughs> well, you, it's just about listening and, uh, yeah, taking some notes. But um, but that's how I learn. And I've learned a lot from you today. So thank you very much for doing this. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at Small Giants Buzz. Until next time.